Well, hello again, everyone. This is Ray Morales with The Blind Spot. And today my guest is retired Colonel Brian O'Connell. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing well, Ray. Thank you. And I will I will make a quick correction, retired Lieutenant Colonel, but yes, okay. thank you. Yeah. That's fine. Um, well, anyway, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Well, that's um, that's sort of like an interview where they say, tell us about yourself. The hardest question, <laughs> of an isn't it? We're, we're always warned about that. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member of the Blinded Veterans Association, and that's how you and I met a couple of weeks back in St. Louis, the BVA. Right. as we. And so I'm a veteran. Um, obviously, in order to be a member, I'm a veteran, uh, Air Force veteran, um, and uh, have been around the world a couple of times, I guess, in that capacity, which was, which was a pretty cool part of my journey. Uh, retired about uh, 16, seven, let me, let me do the math in public here, which is always embarrassing, uh, 17 years ago from the Air Force. And since then, held a variety of positions in uh, the defense uh, contracting world, working with the Air Force in a couple of different positions and um, teaching Air Force Junior ROTC as well, which is what I am currently doing. So how long have you been doing that? That really interests me. I did it for eight, a little bit over eight, eight and a half years uh, between 08, 2008 and 2016. And at that point, which kind of jumps forward to our, uh, one of our purposes for being here today, I think at that point, I started losing much of my eyesight due to glaucoma that had been progressing. Well, that had not been progressing too much to my knowledge at that point, but then began to progress more quickly. And in 2016, I stopped teaching because I thought that was about as far as I could go, given uh, that my eyesight was, was uh, decreasing. And I retired, fully retired for six years plus. And I'm back doing that again, back in the same school, in the same position, and uh, teaching junior ROTC again. So it's been about nine years total between the two the two uh, stints of doing that and, um, and continuing. Well, cool. Um, for my listeners who may not know, what is the difference between ROTC and junior ROTC? Sure. Well, ROTC is the college level reserve officer training corps that the services uh, provide. So that's a college level program that leads to commissioning in one of the armed services. Junior ROTC is a high school course, high school program. That again, the services, all the services offer this. Uh, different schools pick up different service programs. In this case, in my school here in North Carolina, it's an Air Force Junior ROTC program. So it's a high school program, doesn't lead directly to anything as far as the military is concerned. Um, and we are not recruiters, which is one of the messages we try to get out uh, constantly. We're not Air Force or Army or Navy or Marine or Space Force recruiters. Um, we are high school instructors that work for both uh, the, the high school principal and, and the Air Force program, which, which provides the curriculum and provides the support and funding for it. So it's a different program, um, but a high school-based program for junior ROTC and a college-based program for ROTC. So what's the benefit uh, for the student joining ROTC through you? Well, I think there are quite a few potential benefits and, and kids, high school kids, you know, take different programs and join different clubs, if you will, and do different things in high school for various reasons. But 
what we try to offer, and I can speak to our experience here in a uh, small town in northwestern North Carolina, what we try to offer is, is a couple of things. Uh, we try to offer some education, if you will, some um, an ability to provide a, a bigger view of the world in some ways. Uh, we do in our curriculum, we do, we do have lessons on everything from patriotism to military history to um, uh, public speaking and communication. So it's a wide range of curriculum and opportunities for kids to, to participate in, as well as other more, um, more educationally focused programs. Uh, for some of the things that I teach, for instance, are aviation history and aerodynamics, the science of flight, as well as astronomy and space exploration and global cultures. You know, and so it's a wide ranging curriculum. Uh, so we, we do, that's, that's what's published. Okay, these are the things that are published. But in addition to that, and I think most kids who've taken junior ROTC can attest to this, it's a place where kids can come and be a member of a group, a member of a club. And many of them join, uh, take these courses because their friends have taken or are taking these, these courses or their brothers and sisters and or cousins or even parents did this when they were in high school. And so there's a there's a sense of of being part of uh, a something in school that is is pretty cool, like like a club, but a little more in many ways. Right. So what what is the benefit uh, to them if they decide to join Air Force, Army, whatever? Yeah, if they do decide, and and really a small minority of our students do go into the military after high school. Uh, if they do decide, they do have an advantage. They're able to get extra rank which equates to extra pay at the completion of basic training. So if they, if they take a couple or three semesters of junior ROTC, they do get an extra uh, stripe or two, depending on the service, um, when they finish basic training. So there is an advantage if, if a student is interested in doing that. But, but again, there isn't you know, a direct correlation between most students who take junior ROTC and go in the military uh, there is additionally, if a student is interested in taking uh, ROTC in college, going to a four-year school and taking ROTC in a particular service, they do have probably a little bit of an advantage if they compete for a ROTC scholarship. Um, of course, they have to have the grades and all the other attributes that make them competitive, but everything being equal, a student from junior ROTC who competes for an ROTC scholarship, which provides full, um, full tuition and fees, at a four-year university, student has has an advantage uh, from having taken junior ROTC as well. Well, that's great. And um, so, if you you're in uh, the college level, uh, obviously, when you graduate, you become an officer. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Taking ROTC, graduating from the college, and completing the ROTC program, you're commissioned as a uh, second lieutenant or an ensign, depending on the on the service. Okay, that's great. So um, tell me a little bit more about North Carolina. How long have you lived there? <laughs> well, North Carolina is a very, uh, is a state full of variety, that's for sure. As, as it is. State. I yeah, know it's from my own experience, yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful state. Um, I can speak mostly to the, the western area of it, which is where, uh, where I teach. I'm, I'm in a town, a small town called Dobson, North Carolina, a population of about 1,200 people. The county seat of Surrey County 
It's in northwestern North Carolina. It borders on the Virginia border. Um, and we're, we're not in the mountains here, but we're in the foothills of the Blue Ridge. And okay. west of us and, and south of us, people, most people have heard of Asheville and Boone, perhaps. Yeah. Those, are the, those are the towns in the mountains themselves, which are a little bit west, and in Asheville's case, a little bit south of us. So we're in that area of the state. Very pretty, um, very uh, beautiful state. There's hiking and there's, there are vineyards here, uh, rural areas with lots of agriculture still. Uh, used to be more tobacco than it is now. Now it's more soy and corn and uh, chickens, a lot of chickens around these parts. <laughs> um, and cattle uh, to, a, to a fairly large extent as well. So that's the area of North Carolina I'm in. And, you know, when you when you go south and east or more east toward, uh, you know, Raleigh and, and the coast, I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time over there in the past few years, but uh, the area I'm in is, is very pretty. Yeah, I I was stationed in North in North Carolina when I was mm. in the Air Force. I was at Pope Air Force Base. If you're familiar right. with that, yep, yep, sure am. Yep, they used to call it no, Yeah, they used to call it No Hope Pope. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I guess there was No Hope would... Air Force because now it's part of uh, Fort Bragg. Well, it's not Fort Bragg right. anymore, right? Fort Liberty. Yeah. Now it's been it's it was swallowed up by the army. It's all one army post now. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I hate to, I hated to see it go, but, uh, I yeah. guess that's progress, you know? Well, it's definitely so, changed. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's move on a little bit more and, uh, let's talk about, uh, your career in the air force. What did you do? I was, um, I was a lucky guy, you know, when I was in, uh, high school and college there, there was no air force connection in my family. And, um, you know, some people say I've always wanted to fly airplanes or I've always wanted to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. I, I didn't. I, I just wanted to do something that was interesting and different from everybody else. And in the early 70s, the military pretty much fit that bill because, you know, we were coming out of Vietnam at that or finishing up and coming out of Vietnam at that point. And the military was not something that most people I knew were interested in becoming involved in. Uh, right. To me, it's. Yeah, yeah, and to me it sounded interesting because it was different. Number one, and and I read a lot as a kid. I read those adventure boys books that were about you know things that were sometimes military related, and uh, to me that sounded interesting and and uh, it sounded like adventure. So um, I didn't have an Air Force background, as I mentioned, or knew much about the Air Force. But I went to college, and of course there were things that happened in between. Uh, all these decisions. Went to college uh, at Norwich University and um, joined Air Force ROTC in, in part because of the recruiting pitch from the instructors. And uh, Norwich is the nation's oldest private military college. And so as freshmen, and it was an all-male school in those days, we were required to take either Army or Air Force ROTC. You had to take at mm -hmm. least two years. And that was part of the deal at, at Norwich. And I figured I'd take Army ROTC because I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about the Air Force and the Army. Okay, the Army. I, I figured the Army sounded more like something I um, I could understand. And the recruiting pitch uh, during our first couple of days of school, when we sat in the auditorium and it was registration day, and we had to listen to the um, the ROTC department instructors make their pitch. And the Army guys, uh, just to be blunt, they were not very interesting in their pitch. They kind of were dry and formal in their pitch about joining Army ROTC. 
and the Air Force's turn came up next. And I remember the narrator or the moderator up in front of the auditorium, uh, auditorium mentioning that the Air Force guy was supposed to be here, but he's not here, not sure where he is. And from the back of the auditorium, we all heard a voice. And the voice said, hey, guys, what's going on? And down the aisle walked this guy in a flight suit, wearing a flight helmet with an oxygen mask, flung over his shoulder. And he, uh, he walked to the front of the room, took off his flight helmet, put it on the podium and said, my name is Woody Thielen, and I fly jets. And if you think that sounds cool, then you should join Air Force ROTC. <laughs> and I remember him. Major Woody Thielen was one of the instructors, obviously, and uh, it just sounded so cool. Right then and there, I decided to sign up for Air Force ROTC, and hey, well, the, rest sure. is, the rest is history. Yeah. He brought props. <laughs> he did. <laughs> and he had personality, which unfortunately, the Army guys didn't seem to have a whole lot of that, that particular day. No, they were all business, weren't they? Yeah, they were all, yep, they were, they were just, just, uh, just doing the job. Well, I, I talked to you pre previously and uh, mentioned that I, I went through ROTC, high school ROTC, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed it, and uh, especially my instructors. They were great. Um, and if and anybody's not familiar with it, there is always um, one enlisted and one officer uh, at the school that's uh, the commandant and uh, his assistant, I guess they call him. But... Uh, my, my favorite guy there was um, Colonel Vaughn. He was a character. He was old airborne. He'd been into uh, World War II and Vietnam, and he was a tough cookie. And then uh, Master Sergeant Stewart, he was, uh, I'll never forget him. They were really good people, very good instructors, very personable and uh, likable. I just, I enjoyed it so much. So yeah, talking and, about that brings back good memories for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what um, we're able to bring. You know, not some some are better instructors than others, of course, which is always the case. I think one well, of the sure. advantages, and I, I think one of the advantages the program offers is uh, until now, and there are some changes happening as we speak. But until now, all instructors for all the services that provide junior ROTC are retired military members, either officer, as you said, or NCO, and so mm -hmm. we come in with at least twenty years of experience under our belt in the military. And, right. and that gives us a perspective, whether we realize it or not at that point, that's much different from a, a regular teacher who might come in in his or her early 20s with only college and, you know, that that under, you know, that, that behind them. And so we have a perspective, first of all, of having been places and done things. Um, we're probably not as, as uh, awed by having to deal with high school kids as some Younger people might be. It's it's a different world uh, in a high school, but you know, having been places and done things that junior ROTC instructors have done, you know, I think it's a good fit for the the people who are interested. And in and so yes, I think the kids who have good instructors uh, they benefit from that for sure. So, tell me um, where do you go from there? Um, where did uh, where where did your career take you? You said all over the world. Let's start. When you yeah. first in to when uh, when you retired, well, I was um, this Vietnam was winding down. I graduated from Norwich in 1976, so we were still in that major drawdown from uh, Vietnam. And I was one of the two guys in my ROTC program in Norwich who was lucky enough to get a flying slot. 
And um, again, I had no background flying airplanes and, you know, I thought airplanes were cool, but that's about as much as I knew about airplanes. <laughs> so I got flying, flying slot. Now my eyes, you know, ironically enough, my eyes were uh, not great even then. I was nearsighted, so I wore glasses. Not terribly nearsighted, but nearsighted. I wore glasses, so I didn't qualify for a pilot slot. Um, in those days, you had to have 20-20 vision uncorrected to qualify for pilot training. But I did get a navigator slot. And um, so off I went to, uh, to nav school, as we called it, at Mather Air Force Base in Sacramento, California. Right. And it was great. It was, man, Mather, Sacramento, great place. Um, beautiful weather. Beautiful weather near the Bay Area, San Francisco and Monterey and all those places. I'd never been out there. I'd never been on the West Coast. I'm originally from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. Um, so it was a great experience. And nav school to me was just great. You know, this the, the whole program, uh, meeting guys from all around the country. And again, when I say guys, back in those days, only guys flew airplanes. It was not yet open up to women uh, in the cockpit. So it was all guys. And um, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed nav school. Well, from there, uh, I went into advanced training for electronic warfare officer training, which was also at, at Mather Air Force Base. And from there, went to B-52s and qualified to B-52 and was stationed. My first duty station was definitely not Sacramento. It was Loring Air Force Base in Maine, northern, northern, northern Maine, oh, wow. uh, which which was kind of cool, too, because being having been in school in college in Vermont, in northern Maine, although it's a ways away, it's still that same area of the country. So it wasn't as much of a of a change for me as it might have been for someone from the south or from the west. Right. But, so I started in B-52s and had a couple of tours in B, well, three tours in B-52s overall. And uh, was an academic instructor back at Mather at one point, um, academic and simulator and flight instructor back at Mather several tours later. Um, went overseas, well, went to Panama, was stationed down in Panama during the late 80s, early 90s, when that was an interesting time down there mm-hmm. in U.S. Southern Command. Um Flew during the uh, the first Gulf War. Uh, I was a B-52 guy, again, at Loring Air Force Base during the first Gulf War. Had a tour in Guam, uh, beautiful Guam in the Western Pacific, flying B-52s out there as well. And, um, yeah, it was just it, several other things, some staff positions, and I was a squadron commander at one point, uh, again, back at Loring Air Force Base later in my career, and an air liaison officer with the Army's 10th Mountain Division as well. So it was a pretty varied career. I was really fortunate, and... Um, yeah, absolutely. A, a great, a great 26 years of total of 26 years of active duty. Right. Wow. It sounds like an interesting and a fun career. Uh, did you ever get a chance to go out to uh, South Dakota? You know, no, <laughs> I've been, I've been in most States uh, and, but not South Dakota, which is kind of, uh, who knows why? I don't know why. Or how about Omaha? I know that was a big sure. out there. Sure. I was never stationed in Omaha, but several TDYs, you know, several visits out there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I spent a lot of time out there uh, in my civilian career. I was a I was a painter in uh, in my second life after uh, Air Force, and um, I uh, painted every stripe on that base, uh-huh. <laughs> on the streets and uh, on the runways, everywhere. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it out there. Yeah, it, it was a a nice base and. Uh, very very good to to work at the area was really nice too i liked mm-hmm. omaha a lot 
Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good baseball town. College World Series is there every year. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a big deal for sure. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And they got a brand new stadium out there now. Yes, so I've heard. I've not seen the new. I saw the old one, but uh, yeah. Rosenblatt Stadium. I remember. I remember that. I went there once, but uh, that's but, that's funny story. Um, we we were out there, and uh, my wife came to visit, and she she said. We'd heard a lot about the Mutual Omaha Zoo and all that. Mm-hmm. And so we, we went to see the zoo. And we're from St. Louis. We got a great zoo here. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> we thought, well, this is going to be great. It's like one of the biggest in the world, they say. And we get out there. It's a little dinky zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was not impressed at all. Yeah, that's funny. Well, you know, yeah. you came from came from St. Louis. That's, that's yeah. it's It's one of the biggest and f- most... Uh, interesting zoos around and mm. it's free you know one of the last free zoos oh, okay uh-huh. Uh-huh. i love the san diego zoo but it costs an arm and a leg to get in that uh, one. okay yeah yeah but uh, i'm a zoo person i just love going to the zoo all right so let's uh, let's talk more about you instead of me everybody knows my story so <laughs> let's talk about how you started losing your vision well it was uh, i didn't know i started losing my vision when it began um I mentioned this in my talk when I was talking uh, to the BBA a couple of weeks back, you know, in the Air Force as a flyer, you have annual physicals, annual mm-hmm. medical exams, and right. uh, that's the eye exam. And, you know, they do that little air puff test on your eyes to check the pressure. And I was actually deployed. I was deployed a lot. And I was deployed during this particular um, exam. And uh, I remember the tech said, you know, when you go home, you might want to get those eyes checked because your pressure is kind of high. And, and I, you know, you know, you just think, oh, yeah, whatever. Sure. Okay. And um, when I went back home, uh, when I was redeployed and I did have my my uh, my checkup, well, sure enough, my pressure was high and I was diagnosed with glaucoma. I didn't notice any difference. I could not tell myself. And, uh, you know, I started going on medicated eye drops, which the doctors told me, eh, this is what you do. And, and, I, and I remember asking I do recall asking a lot of questions about what's this all about? What's it going to lead to? And the answer I heard more often than not was, well, there's no telling. Everybody's case of glaucoma seems to be a little bit different. We're not really sure why, uh, why it happens or what the cause is. Um, and there's no standard. There's no normal progression. Some people progress uh, not much at all. Other people's condition progresses. So that's what I knew. And I took eye drops for several years. I was good at taking my eye drops. I, you know, when doctors told me, don't be one of those people who don't take your eye drops, I, I took them at the word. And I was very good at following the routine and the prescriptions. Um, and so I didn't notice much of a difference, although, you know, probably I couldn't see quite as well in, in, in some ways, but didn't affect anything practically for me. Uh, and so I, I had retired from the Air Force and was actually recalled back in the Air Force after 9-11 and spent another four years doing some electronic warfare stuff at Eglin Air Force Base. Uh, went back in on a waiver because of my eye condition, but it didn't affect anything, practically speaking, again. Mm-hmm. So I, when I reverted to retirement uh, in, o, in 06 and eventually began teaching junior ROTC, again, no, no issues. I coached baseball. You know, I taught in the classroom. Everything was fine until uh, summer 2014. And it was one of those things that it just happened. And I noticed my one of my eyes started to become a little more cloudy and uh, my, my vision a little more cloudy. And 
you know, you start blinking and doing all those things that just come natural and it wasn't clearing up. Finally, went to go see my ophthalmologist and she told me that, oh, you know, high pressure spike, optic nerve was damaged more, emergency surgery, and I lost a significant amount of vision in that in that episode. Same exact thing happened about a year later to my right eye. This time I sensed what was happening because I experienced the same thing with my left a year prior and it went right in that emergency surgery again. But again, the, the, the spike of the pressure was quick and it affected my optic nerve and my vision decreased, my eyesight decreased significantly in both eyes as a result of those episodes. So that was 2014, 2015. And as I mentioned, 20, by, by 2016, uh, my eyesight had incrementally continued to um, get worse. And that's when I decided uh, or, or felt like I was forced to decide to, you know, to stop teaching and, uh, and, and figure out what my next step was going to be. So it was a, a long-term, but a very, in the end, very uh, quick transition from feeling pretty normally sighted to quickly realizing that or quickly having to deal with not normal eyesight. And then since 2016, it's continued to incrementally decrease until at this point I'm, I'm legally blind and um, just, you know, dealing with that on a, on a regular daily basis. Right. So tell me how you were feeling when you first were diagnosed with the uh, glaucoma. Well, I was first diagnosed, it was kind of like, okay, you know, I'll deal with that. You know, I was, I was, um, I didn't, I didn't have, as I mentioned, didn't have any significant uh, awareness of any change. So I didn't see it. I literally didn't see it. And, <laughs> it <laughs> no, never gets old. I love right, it. right, right. <laughs> and so I didn't think much about it. And I really, other than doing my eye drops, other than following the regimen for eye drops faithfully, I didn't think of it, and uh, it didn't affect me in any other way except having to do eye drops. Which so at that time you weren't really scared or worried. Um, no, losing your sight. It was Correct. Just... I I never expected it would. I never didn't even think about it to be honest. I knew I had that condition, and I knew I take eye drops, and sort of like you know I'm trying to draw a parallel. You know, if if you have high blood pressure, perhaps, and you take high blood high blood pressure meds, and you're feeling fine you might not think about it. And, and I have high blood pressure, so I take high blood pressure meds. So I'm, that's kind of what I'm saying. I don't think about it on a daily basis. I feel fine. And my blood pressure is fine as long as I stay on my meds and I, and I have. Um, so that's kind of the way I thought about it, but probably not consciously. Just, you know, it's just the way you go about your daily business and do your thing. Right. Yeah. So as it progressed, then um, when did it start getting scary is basically what I want to know. Right. Well, that was 2014. That's when that episode happened on my left eye. Was it just a certain day that said, wow, this it was. Yes. Yes. And it was it wasn't like it happened and I was immediately aware. Actually, my wife and I were at the beach and um, and I noticed, you know, looking out over the the view, the ocean, the beach. And I noticed my that one eye was just not it just didn't seem right. And uh, I noticed it, but didn't think much about it. I thought, ah, maybe this is sand or maybe salt spray or who, who knows, you know, you just right. sort of, you just sort of don't think much. It just seems kind of, you know, it'll be all right. And so that was the first episode and it didn't become all right. And then that second, and then, you know, had to have emergency surgery when I, when I got back home, which was, you know, like a week or two later for the surgery. 
Um, so that, yeah, that, that became apparent something was wrong, but my other eye was still okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I thought, okay, one eye is not great. It's not awful at this point. Not great. The other eye is okay. And, um, and then the other eye, same thing happened about a year later, like I mentioned. And um, yeah, then it became real on a regular basis. Uh -huh. That's when it became, all right, should I be driving anymore? Uh, should I change you know, my life significant. And then even those weren't necessarily conscious decisions. And I think a lot of us can, a lot of us who have gone through this, we can kind of identify with that. It's um, when it's gradual and incremental, you kind of deal with it gradually and incrementally. And um, until, until it becomes very apparent, like in my, my, my case, when I stopped driving, I almost hit a guy. And that was when it became very apparent to me that I, I, I will not drive anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I've interviewed several people that that's the case for them. They uh, mm -hmm. that that one close call that they had while driving really scared them. In yeah. And thank God, you know, I didn't have an accident. One or myself. Um, I did not. Thank goodness, because it could have happened probably several times. I was lucky and, and it did not. But that one time. And I've, I mentioned this to you know a whole lot of people. I was driving out of my neighborhood. We were living in Florida at the time. I was retired. And I was driving out of my neighborhood and um, had just turned off my street. And so I was going very slow, maybe 10 miles an hour at the most. And there were there was a crew doing some tree trimming along the street, you know, for wires or, or whatever. The uh -huh. They were some tree trimming. And there's a guy standing out there in the orange vest with that sign, you know, that stop slow sign. And, um, right. and I didn't see him until I was right on him. And fortunately, I was going so slow that I stopped and did not touch him. And I don't know whether he, he ever realized <laughs> how close he came to me running him over. Um, but at that point, I just, I went up to the next driveway, turned around, came back home. And I've walked in the house and gave my keys to my wife and I said, that's it. I almost, I almost ran over a guy. I, I, I have no business being behind the wheel of a car. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's pretty scary. Especially, you know, you you look down or you just look away and you, you don't see anybody. And then you look back and there's a guy standing in front of you. Well, and for me, with I have very little central vision. Uh -huh. uh, my my glaucoma progressed, very little central vision. So I don't think I was looking away or down. I was looking straight ahead and still oh. not see him. You see, that's, that's, that was the scary thing, looking straight ahead. And then he just materialized uh, probably through my peripheral vision at the last right. second. Right. Yeah. And so that that really hit home with me. Like, OK, dude, it's it's time. And I had pushed it, you know, as most of us probably do. I had pushed it and being having that ability to drive is something that who wants to give that up, you know, and. Uh, well, I know I didn't. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, that that was the probably the worst thing that ever happened. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. The fact that I had to give up my license. Mm -hmm. I my my uh my case was a little different uh it wasn't gradual it was all of a sudden uh mine was due to high blood pressure and kidney failure and um it just came all of a sudden like i said i had a stroke just a triple whammy all at once yeah and yeah. I, I had gone to a physical i was having my annual physical and uh i just had a, a one about six months earlier and they said everything was fine. And uh, then um, started having symptoms of um, 
just dizziness and walking on my toes. And my wife said, you need to go to the doctor. I'll set you up an appointment. So I left from work that afternoon and uh, went straight to the doctor. And uh, he took my blood pressure and he said, you need to go to the emergency room right now. Mm. So I went to the emergency room and uh, while I'm sitting there waiting to see a doctor, I had a stroke and I didn't know it. And uh, so the doctor sees me and uh, had another stroke while I was in in his office. And uh, it was crazy. Wow. They uh, sedated me. So um, to get my blood pressure down and then um, I had, um, I guess, another stroke that really did me in and they took my eyesight. I woke up from the sedation and uh, I was totally blind. Then um, as the weeks progressed, I eventually got a little bit of my sight back, but uh, not all of it. So I was diagnosed legally blind at that time. And that was the last time I ever drove. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so many, we all have our stories, right? And everyone, and, and it's, I think it's tempting to try to think of visually impaired blind people as kind of all the same, you know, in a very general sense. You know, I think the general population, and maybe I was as guilty of this as anyone uh, in the past. You know, someone's visually impaired or blind, and we just sort of have this this image in our minds, perhaps, of something, you know, a guy with a cane or a person with a dog, and that's maybe as far as we ever thought about exactly. it. Exactly. And yet everyone is entirely different. The, the circumstances, the, the conditions, you know, the causes, um, you can say there's glaucoma or there's like in your situation, a stroke and, and high blood pressure or a combat you know, related wound, or you can, you can look at different causes, but they're still all incredibly different. And, oh, yeah. and the way they manifest and the way we deal with those things um, are just as different. Yeah, there's so many. I've interviewed so many people, and everyone's story is different. Yes. That, that's what fascinates me about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole reason I started doing this podcast was to get awareness out there to people that, you know, the only only thing I knew about blind people was, like you said, they had a cane or a dog or they wore dark glasses. That was, mm-hmm. I'd never even encountered a blind person my whole life before this happened to me. Yeah. And it's, it's very rare. And, um, and I, when I was going through the Blind Rehab Center down in Biloxi uh, a couple of years, actually four years ago now, uh, four years ago, and um, this was instructive. I was walking in the neighborhood. We were out doing mobility training with my, mm-hmm. with the cane. And, right. you know, most of us, well, I'll, I'll put, I'll, I'll say me, I can't speak for most of us. I kind of resisted the cane thing because I had enough, I have enough peripheral vision. I can more or less see where I'm going. You know, oh, I'm right there with you. I right. You. I mean, yeah. I'll step in a hole and I'll bop my head on a low hanging branch. Absolutely. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know, and finally I, I get to the point of, okay, I understand the cane is very helpful, very useful, but we're going through mobility training to back up to the story here. And we're in a neighborhood and uh, we walked, we're coming to a corner, we're coming to a, a, a T intersection and we're going to cross the street. And my instructor is behind me. I have the cane instructors behind me. And there was a car coming up from my left and it was, he or she was going to turn right as we were getting ready to cross. And so I waited and the car waited and we were both kind of waiting to see, should I, am I going to step out? Is he going to turn? You know, that very, very quiet neighborhood. So it wasn't like it was a busy street. And I, and I sort of turned my head over my shoulder and said to my instructor, I guess he's never 
I guess he's not used to seeing a person with a cane. And she said, he's probably never seen a person with a cane because most people who need a cane don't get out and walk. And I thought that was very interesting. Because mm-hmm. She's right. Yeah. You don't see blind people. You don't see people with canes because they're not out for the most part. Right. Um, I yeah. was, I was not afraid to leave my house when it first happened to me, but I had not had any professional mobility mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a cane, but I never didn't know how to use it. Um, I just tapped along like, you know, you see in the movies. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that I found out that was the wrong way to use it. <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I had a rude awakening when I went to Heinz, um, mm-hmm. the blind rehab center that I went to. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot. And uh, it really changed my life. Absolutely. It, it, that was, man, what a absolutely life-changing experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether you go to Heinz or Biloxi, you know, pick one. There's 13 blind rehab centers out there. Right, right. And, uh, uh, man, what a what a program. And so many people aren't aware of it. Like, I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't either, yeah. yeah. And like I told, I told my instructor there, this is the best kept secret in the, the whole VA. Yes. Yes. And a change, I mean, life changing is, is not too strong a phrase. I, um, I went in 2019 and I had, you know, my eyesight had been really, uh, I had lost a lot of my eyesight starting in 2015, as I mentioned. So it'd been several years and I didn't really think of it much at the time, but I look back on it and I realized I stopped doing things, uh, that I normally would do because I felt uncomfortable not being able to mostly with people not being able to see the faces and being able to to interact socially the way i used to and the way you know you normally are used to doing and at the time we lived in florida and i i really enjoyed sailing i had a boat a a, a sailboat and i enjoyed sailing and being and being out in the water and i could still do that because i knew how to do it and i didn't need as much eyesight to actually sail the boat but being at the marina and interacting with other people, I stopped. I, I didn't get involved in anywhere near as many of those things as I otherwise, I know I would have. And it was truly because I, w- I would walk through that area and there'd be people talking and I could not tell if they're waving hi or smiling or pointing or, you know, right, right. flipping me the bird or whatever. I mean, you, I, you don't know. And so you start avoiding, I did, started avoiding social places because it was hard and it was uncomfortable. Right. Man, you that's the thing you don't want to do, right? That's the thing you, exactly. have, to, you yeah. have to try to do even more purposefully because it's so easy to retreat that I started retreating. Yep. Mm-hmm. As many of us do. Yep. And then that leads to... Um isolation that leads mm-hmm. to depression and uh mm-hmm. if you don't stop it it'll go downhill quick absolutely absolutely and i see a lot of veterans that that's what happens mm-hmm. to them mm-hmm. and hopefully through like i said this podcast that i can make a difference and uh let them know they're not alone there is hope there there is a future out there you just have to just because you're blind and you've lost your eyesight does not mean you've lost your vision you got to have a vision for your future. Yeah, that is that is so true. You know, when I was thinking uh, about some of the things we might talk about today, and mm-hmm. I gave my talk a couple of weeks back, I, I mentioned, 
you know, some of my approaches to life. And I've always been a risk taking kind of guy, not not absolutely outlandish, but, you know, I've enjoyed adventure and, and sports and, you know, those kinds of things. And I still do. So I did talk about that to some extent, but I also sure. trying to draw a parallel to, you know, there are so few people um, in the population. There are a lot of us who are visually impaired or blind, but, you know, as far as a ratio, a percentage of the population, a very small percentage. And so when we think the greater population think of someone who has lost his or her eyesight, it's, you know, oh my, you know, it's a terrible thing. I feel so sorry for that person. But, you know, everyone just getting older, man, that comes with its own challenges. You right, know? right. And how many times have we heard uh, someone who's in their 40s say, well, I can't do that anymore. That and, and that and that being something like, I can't run anymore. I can't, uh, you know, fill in the blanks, do something physically. Right. Because I'm old, I'm 40 something years old. My knees are shot, my back is shot, my what you know, fill in the blanks. And you hear it all the time. And so people are modifying their lives without even realizing that they're surrendering. And it, it's everywhere. So we have something that's more obvious. We have something that's you know, visual impairment or blindness is very obvious. But everybody has something they're dealing with, almost everyone, right? And so right. our journey is not that much different in many ways, in a in a general sense. Um, I, I'm not going to be that guy who says I can't, there are things, as I mentioned, there are things I don't do anymore, but I don't want to say I can't because that just, that's a surrender. And, um, the, the, the 42 year old guy who says I can't run anymore. I'm like, come on, man. You know, you have options, you have choices here. And I'm not talking injuries. I'm not talking, you know, something that isn't controllable. I'm talking things that are controllable. Right. And, uh, that's just kind of. I think that's an approach that it does, doesn't make us seem so different. You know, sure, we have eyesight loss. Okay, we're dealing with that. Somebody else has other challenges. Deal with that and keep going. Just keep moving. Well, I tell you, um, some of the guys that have been a big inspiration to me, I met through the BVA and uh, guys like uh, – Lonnie Bedwell, you know, he's totally blind um, because someone shot him in the face with a shotgun. Um, there's Steve Baskus. Um, he was wounded in action. He's blind, totally blind. These guys, they're out climbing mountains. They're out shooting the rapids in a kayak. And uh, it's just amazes me the things <laughs> that blind people can do if you just surrender to it and do it. Yes, absolutely true and they have been an inspiration to me as well and i know them both and i count them both as good friends mm -hmm. um, and i mentioned in my talk again that when i was at the uh, the blind rehab center i received a call from lonnie who i had not met and did not know of prior to that uh -huh. he's the guy that got me going got me uh, first of all i wasn't aware of the opportunities the adaptive sports programs that are out many 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 of them that are out there and he got me, uh, he gave me information and encouraged me and invited me to participate. In my case, Steamboat Springs and then Crested Butte out in Colorado. Uh, what what a, uh, an incredible opportunity. And um, I jumped in. I jumped in wholeheartedly. And even though I was a little bit curious as to how things would go, being there with, with Lonnie and other people. You know, you meet the other people who are right. so suffering visual impairment, working through that and, and moving forward as they're doing it. Uh, the reason to say 
the reason to say I can't just goes away. But at the same time, that's me. And those are the people who do that. Uh, but there's so many people, as, as all of us have heard, you know, they get the call, they get the invitation. Hey, come on out. We're doing these. There are these opportunities. You're invited. And so many people, so many veterans, so many visually impaired and blind veterans say, ah, no, thanks. No, thanks. No, thanks. And, and they don't. And it's too bad. Right. It's, um, I, I am, I am one of those. I, I, I hate to admit it, but I'm the guy that likes to sit on the couch and uh, watch TV, <laughs> what I can see of the TV. Mostly I just listen to it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, I am that guy, but I'm starting to turn my life around. Mm. So slowly but surely I'm getting out there and, and doing more and more because well, yeah. through this podcast and talking to veterans, uh, I'm really um, in awe of these guys and I want to be like them when I grow up. That's what I tell people. I understand. I understand. And it's, and it's not so, I think there's a perception sometimes of, well, if I go to a skiing week, uh, a veterans skiing week, I have to go skiing and, and race down the mountain and I never skied in my life. Well, no. Yeah. You can ski if you want as much or as little as you want with an instructor who's going to be very good, but you get that, you get that uh, camaraderie, you get right, that right, social right. energy. It's, it's priceless. And even if you really aren't into skiing at all or cold weather or, you know, fill in the blanks, um, man, the, the, the rest of it, the 90% of it is being with these other people, these cool people who are doing things and being involved and just the great people. And that's, that is, that's what really counts. Yeah. It is, uh, like you said, the camaraderie, mm-hmm. it reminds me of, uh, being back in the service again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like it. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, trying to explain it to someone who's never experienced it, it's just mm-hmm. you, you can't. You really can't. Right. Right. And, and these are people, you know, these everyone I've met through these programs, I didn't know before. There's a single person I've been out to any of these programs with who I knew in a service or anywhere else. I've met all these guys and girls through these programs. And it's just a quick, easy, everybody gets along. Everybody gets mm-hmm. and talks. It's immediate. Right. It's immediate kinship right there, and it's right. It's, it's a brotherhood. Absolutely, uh, and sisterhood. It, uh, it really, um, you have something you can bond over, and uh, everybody's story is different, but mm-hmm. basically it's the same, and um, that's what brings us together. I think. Yeah, yeah, and you said, you know, I'm just going to throw this out there for what it's worth, Ray. You said you're that guy that sits on a couch. Well, hey, man. Look at what you're doing as we speak. You know, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I don't have a podcast. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> has a podcast. So good for you, man. And that's yeah. that counts. There's not that many um, podcasts that deal with this subject at all. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, when I was, um, I mean, there's a lot of blind spots out there. Mm-hmm. And that's why I had to put the blind spot by Ray Morales. Because oh, I see. Yeah. When I, when I first, uh, I thought I was being clever by picking the blind spot Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't know there were like 20 other ones out there. Okay. Uh, Everything (laughs) from finance to um, um, gosh, what was another one that really surprised me? Oh, it was a sewing site. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What, what that has to do with the blind spot. I don't know, but Uh, maybe that's a sewing term. I wouldn't know. It may be. I don't know. I don't sew. So, yeah, (laughs) but anyway, there's all kinds of them out there. Mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. I was being really original and clever, 
at first I, I, I wanted the name to be, um, what was it going to be? Um, another thing that had to do with blind. I can't remember it now. It's been so long, but I, I, I saw another one on there that was the same thing. So I had to change the name. The yeah. blind eye, the blind eye is what I was doing. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh-huh. And, uh, but there was another one. It was a finance website. It's a, right. a podcast, but anyhow, I digress. Um, so let's, let's get back to um, what we were talking about, the, the adaptive sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many uh, different adaptive sports are you aware of? Well, I'm aware. I know there are a lot of different sports. There, right, right. There's kayaking and tandem riding, tandem bicycle riding. Um, there's, there's blind soccer. There's goalball. I mean, there are, there are a number. Probably pretty much, you know, the goal, the, the, um, the, uh, the Veterans Affairs has some really good programs, golf and, and the Golden Age Games, you know, among others that, that right. we can participate in. That, that, that term, by the way, Golden Age Games, I just, I kind of think, uh, you know, <laughs> I think you have to be 50 or 55 to, to, to produce, I'm not sure, the, uh, the youngest age. But that just, I don't know. I don't know if, you know, I don't know. That's just kind of a thing with me. Don't, don't call me old. You know, just because just I'm old, don't call me old. But, <laughs> but, but I know there are a lot of adaptive sports. But the ones I participated in were the skiing, the downhill skiing, and steamboat and Crested Butte, and the hiking uh, out there as well. Uh, hiking and doing some camping as well uh, at, at uh, both places, steamboat and Crested Butte. So summer, summer opportunities and winter opportunities. Um, and just really it's more of a matter of scheduling and timing that I've been there up as opposed to some of the other programs around the country. Um, yeah. I, um, sorry, my, I got a text message come through. So oh. <laughs> I'm happened. sorry about that. Uh, anyway, um, it just distracted me for a second. I was going to ask you a very, very intense question. Now I can't of course, remember. Of course you were. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Probably any, the most important question of the whole, of the whole interview. Oh yeah. Now, now it's yeah. gone. It's yeah. out there in the universe there and I can't get it back. <laughs> yep. I tell you the stroke really uh, messed with my memory. Mm. Uh, it's hard for me to remember from one minute to the next, mm. but then again, that's probably with the old age. Perhaps. You, you, know? you and I are about the same age. Um, yeah, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I graduated high school in 75. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you said you graduated in 76? That, well, high school in 72. Oh, 72. So okay. Got, got you by a few years. but not Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's get back to adaptive sports again. I keep mm-hmm. going back there. Sure. Um, so how, how do you afford to do all these traveling to all these different places? I know that's my listeners want to know. Yeah. Uh, many of the programs um, take care of that. It's not an issue. Um, for instance, Crested Butte, and I can't speak to every program Crested Butte has. I don't know about every program. I'm just using Crested Butte as a good example because I'm, I'm familiar with that. The, the veterans programs that I participated in are all at no cost. So when I was able to participate, uh, they took care of the airfare and the lodging and food and I mean, the only money I would spend on that week would be if we're going to stop by next door and get a beer after a day of skiing, you know, and right. Um, so that's what a deal, you know, um, yeah. amazing. And it is, it is amazing. It's fantastic and incredibly, I'm incredibly grateful for that kind of support. 
and that and and of course they get sponsors and they, they fundraise they fundraise for that and it's um it's great you know we, it's a wonderful opportunity others like steamboat we do pay the airfare participants are required to get there but once you're there everything is taken care of again so airfare depending on where you're coming from you know it can be whatever it is a couple hundred bucks or right a, a but really other than that if you're if you're going to pay for a week on the mountain <laughs> i don't know for people who don't ski i don't know if they have any idea how much it costs to go ski in these days if you're just a regular joe showing up uh you're gonna rent gear or you have bought your own gear and you're gonna buy a lift ticket uh it's a lot you know you're talking a couple of grand for oh, wow. a week on a mountain easy well not for us you know it's it's taken care of and uh, like I said, in Steamboat, we have to get there and back. But once we're there, it's all taken care of. And and other, I can't speak in for other programs, but I'm sure they have similar type arrangements. Well, that's what but, I've heard for different yeah. types of programs. They most of it's covered by um, donations, and mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's no no cost to the veteran at all. Mm -hmm. No, or little cost. And I think that yeah, very if that's if that's an impediment. If someone's thinking, well, I can't afford to go do that, well. You haven't asked the right questions, maybe, because you might find that it's incredibly affordable and maybe even free. Um, so, yeah. And, and again, those those people who sponsor that and, and the and the people who donate, gee, you know, I'm incredibly grateful. Right. Because that provides not just for me. I'll take advantage of it and I'll be very grateful. But look at the opportunities that these people who are donating provide to all these veterans who are able to participate. Exactly. And. uh it's it's amazing um, that there's so many there's such a variety of programs out there. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever you're into, whatever you might want to try and do, they, they'll have something for you. Absolutely. I mean, there's hunting and fishing, exactly, and, and sailing, and uh, I mean, yeah, you name it. Like you said, whatever you're into, it's probably there. There's an adapter program for that, and maybe more than one. I never knew they had such things, you know, again, because I was never around blind people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Again, you know, meet, making those contacts, meeting people who, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy, you know, and then you start. Right. Meeting exactly. People. That's how it happens. And exactly how it happens. And uh, yeah, a couple last year at the BVA convention in Washington, D.C., one of the VA uh, representatives, and I can't remember the man's name, but he gave a very good briefing on the uh, the VA adaptive sports programs, the, the ones that the VA presents themselves uh -huh. and hosts and sponsors. And it was a very good program. And I wasn't very familiar with what the VA did, although I was very familiar with other adaptive sports programs. And I said to him after the briefing, I said, why, why am I not familiar with this? I'm tuned in to adaptive sports, you know, and I do these things and I've been to the BRC and I've never heard of these things that, you, and I, I was aware of the golden age game and, and, and some of the other things, but some of the other events, and I can't even tell you offhand what they all were, but there's a whole group of them. Uh -huh. so I said, why am I not aware of these? I said, I'm, I'm your target population. You know, I'm one of them. And why am I not aware and, and he said, well, it's on the website. I said, well, if I don't know about your website, I'm not going to know about it. And why am I not aware of your website? And, and I wasn't being unkind to him. I was saying this in a positive way. And he said, yeah, maybe we just need to publish the website. And I said, that'd be a great idea. And ever since then, actually, I get on Facebook, I, and I didn't sign up for it, but I get notifications um, 
or or on my Facebook feed, I see the VA adaptive sports program stuff come down on there. Huh. Maybe they're making more of a um, making more of a push to do that. How are the right. you know the, those algorithms work? But I didn't see those before. So you know, kudos to them if that's based on their purpose and they're doing that. But um, yeah, again, it's a matter of knowing somebody who, who knows something and finding out about it and uh, going from there. Right. It's all in who you know, I guess. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Large part. And that's, yeah. that's been the story of my life. It's who you know. Yeah. Yeah. That gets you something. Well, I tell you, it's been about an hour and I think um, we should wrap it up. People are not going to be wanting to hear any more of this. I'm sure <laughs> uh, their attention spans usually don't last this long. Yeah. Mine doesn't either. <laughs> 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 But I tell you, I really appreciate you, Brian. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Hope you had fun like I did. Yes, yes. Thank you, Ray. It's been a it's been a treat. And um, yeah, I, I'm glad to have met you out at uh, St. Louis. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Oh yeah, I'm sure we will. Uh, I don't see this uh, that you're going to be on my list of people to call once a once a quarter and uh, just to keep in touch, see how you're doing. Sounds good. All right. Well, you tell family I said hello, and um, God bless everyone there, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. Don't hang up. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and uh, sign off, do some housekeeping chores here, and and then uh, I'll get back to you, okay? Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So, I tell you, folks, this has been a great, great interview with um, my buddy, Brian O'Connell, and um, he's just been great. So, if you guys... If this is your first time listening, I really want to earn your um, your subscription. So please um, like and share and um, leave uh, comments. Uh, that really helps me out. So um, I appreciate you listening. And uh, we are a weekly podcast. We're here every week. So you just set the time that you want to listen to it and uh, be back the same time every week. So uh, you can also listen to all of our old episodes. Um, we're on Spotify. We're also on, uh, um, what is it, um, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and many others. So um, just go ahead and use your regular uh, podcast platform, and uh, you can find us there. Just type in The Blind Spot by Ray Morales, and uh, I'll pop up. So uh, please come back and see us. And, um, Brian, anything else you want to say? No, I really enjoyed it, Ray, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, we're going to sign off. Folks, see you next time. Bye-bye.